It feels like such a privilege to sit here with you. With a gathering of processes of body and mind interested in getting to know themselves. What an amazing thing. From this perspective that I have the privilege of being in, witnessing the unfolding of your practice in conversations with some of you and just watching, seeing you move through your day, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, eating. I get, I have the, the sense or the feeling of the the Dharma kind of steeping us all. And I know from the inside, at least in my own experience of these retreats when I was on that side of the, the hall, sometimes it can feel like we get pretty wrapped up in the details of a particular struggle or stress or and maybe we lose sight of the bigger picture of just the way the dharma works the gradual nature of the wearing away of greed aversion and delusion The Buddha talked about this path as a gradual path. One analogy he used was, um, he said, as if there were a ship, or kind of there's a ship out being dragged onto dry land after it has spent months on the sea being saturated with the seawater and the wind and the waves, all of the parts of the ship saturated by all of that on the sea and then dragged up on dry land and further saturated by the wind and the sand blowing across it and the sun baking the parts of the ship. And he points to how over time, gradually, and he particularly focuses on the rigging of the ship, the rope, how gradually over time that rope will wear away. If you think about this analogy, like in any particular day, if you look at the rope, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, it's not going to look like much has happened in terms of the wearing away of the, of the rope. But it is an exorably being weakened, 
through the contact with the sun, the sand, the wind, the water. Until one day, maybe a year or two later, you walk up to parts of that ship and pick it up and the rope falls apart in your hand. Maybe you didn't even see the rope wearing away. And so that kind of gradual nature of this path, to me it's important to remember that regularly. That we don't like measure how our practice is doing based on what happened today and whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. But over time, I think it was the Dalai Lama who said, you know, look back five years, ten years, and see, are you kinder? Is there a little less reactivity in your mind? And the practice works on us slowly. And so it is an exercise in confidence and faith and patience to walk this path. The night of the Buddha's awakening, I found the quote of what it is said happened in the Buddha's mind, how we know this, don't ask me. But it says, well, he's telling the story perhaps. You know, he says, then the thought occurred to me, telling the story of that night. Then the thought occurred to me, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful, refined. Peaceful, refined, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in attachment, is excited by attachment, enjoys attachment. For a generation delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, enjoying attachment, This, that, conditionality, and dependent co-arising are hard to see. And he goes on to say, it's also hard to see the relinquishment of acquisitions, the ending of craving. Nibbana. And it said he he doubted whether as Greg mentioned last night, there would be anybody who'd understand him. But for our great fortune, he did decide to teach. And I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the teaching he said would be so hard for us to understand. Dependent co-arising.
This is uh, pretty, as he said, subtle, hard to see, hard to understand, profound, unattainable by mere reasoning. And so it's not a simple teaching, this teaching of dependent co-arising. Well, actually, there's two forms of it. There's multiple forms of it in the teachings, the suttas, but two key forms of dependent co-arising. One which describes the process by which suffering comes to be. We can look at this teaching of dependent co-arising as being an elaboration on the second noble truth, the arising of suffering. And that the craving, with the arising of craving, is the arising of suffering. This is a a more detailed elaboration on that. The second form of conditionality that's described in the suttas is... uh, Conditionality that describes how our minds move towards freedom. There are conditions that support the mind to see the ending of suffering, the ending of craving, the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so there's a a set of conditions that are described that are conditions that are cultivated as we walk this path and that strengthen, wholesome qualities that strengthen. And so the same process of conditionality, which this evening I'm going to focus on a part of the teaching that describes how it creates suffering. And I want to just say at the beginning that this same process in our minds of this conditions that, when this arises, that arises... When this ceases, that ceases. With the arising of this is the arising of that. With the cessation of this is the cessation of that. That that simple statement of conditionality doesn't simply take us into suffering, but there are processes at work. Wisdom, mindfulness, concentration, investigation, that support the movement of the mind towards release from greed, aversion, and delusion. So that's kind of good news that it's not like this process of conditionality only works to create suffering. It also supports the creation of conditions for release. There's a famous teaching or kind of interchange, I'd say, an interchange between Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for a number of years, and the Buddha. And Ananda comes to the Buddha kind of, you get the impression he's kind of excited. Ananda says, it's wonderful, it's marvelous how profound this dependent origination is. And profounded, how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha, you know, knowing actually at this point, Ananda is not 
awakened, says, Do not say that, Ananda. Do not say that. This dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is not, it is through not understanding, not penetrating this teaching, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as with the blight, tangled with like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe. So he really points to this not understanding how this process of suffering is created, how the process of dependent origination can lead us away from suffering as being a profound teaching that is, through not understanding it, we stay caught, we stay stuck. So perhaps we have to begin with a little bit of hearing something about the teaching and begin perhaps to recognize some of the description of what he's talking about in our own experience. I would say that, you know, the teachings of the Buddha kind of have different flavors to them. Some of the teachings of the Buddha and a lot of what we've been offering in this retreat have been the instruction side of his teaching, how to practice, how to meet our experience, the teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness. Some of his teachings are descriptive in nature. And this one, the teaching on dependent origination, the pattern of dependent origination applied to how suffering arises, it's a description of the habitual nature of our minds. I wouldn't call it exactly a practice. It's what, we, it's what our minds will do when we're not present. This process that he described about how suffering is created, it's the tendency of our mind when it is caught by ignorance, when it's caught by not seeing the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. When we don't understand suffering, the arising of suffering, the possibility of the ending of suffering and the path leading to the ending of suffering, not understanding that, as the Buddha said to Ananda, we stay caught. And so the staying caught, he described what happens for us. And so this Teaching is really a description at a very um, detailed level of what goes on in our mind. It's like his recognition through his own exploration of his own mind of how suffering comes to be. And he described it for us with the pointing out or hope to help us to understand how we get caught. So it's a very clear description. This teaching is a very clear description of how suffering happens. A helpful, why it's helpful to talk about this partly is because we can begin to see, it's like he describes suffering as a phenomenon that is impersonal, human. And so recognizing that 
how these processes work in our mind, that he describes it in this way, we might begin to get a maybe a little bit less identified feeling like it's my fault that I have self-hatred arising. As opposed to beginning to understand its conditions that have led to this. And so the, the recognition of the humanness of our patterns of suffering. We're not alone in this process. The Buddha's described a kind of archetype of how suffering happens. And we can see our own suffering when we look at our experience, any particular flavor of suffering. We can start to see these patterns, these archetypal patterns, these human patterns happening. This um, teaching also points out the conditioned nature of suffering in that it is suffering arises when certain conditions are in place. If those conditions fall apart and the teachings of the Buddha help us to meet our experience in a way such that the conditions that put suffering into place begin to fall apart. And when those conditions are no longer there, suffering no longer arises. And so the conditioned nature of suffering, that it's not destined for our minds. Somebody used the phrase the other day of suffering being optional. Well, in a way it's optional. I mean, when we, when we, when we begin to recognize these patterns and habits in our mind with mindfulness and wisdom, we can see there's a choice, that there can be a choice point. That we don't just have to follow the habitual tendencies of mind. And that mindfulness and wisdom can release those habitual tendencies. The releasing of those habitual tendencies can lead to the release from suffering, stress, unsatisfactoriness. So this chain or this teaching, this description of conditions that lead to the arising of suffering describes conditions we're not locked in a kind of inevitable process when conditions change and the practice of the wise mindfulness, wise effort, wise concentration, the Eightfold Path, create the conditions for the, for the, the mind to take the other trajectory that the Buddha pointed to, the trajectory of conditions that lead us away from suffering. This description or the, 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 the description of the links or the conditions that lead to suffering also is understood. I think this is interesting to kind of know these, this process by which the Buddha describes the, how suffering is created. Also describes how the sense of self is created and latched onto. Same process at work, 
the creation of identification, the creation of suffering. This is useful for us to remember at times because sometimes, you know, especially when we start talking about the teaching on not-self, sometimes people hear that teaching and think, I need to find not-self, I need to see through self. But sometimes what's up is suffering. And that's what's available to be seen, the dukkha of a particular habit or pattern. But looking at the dukkha, looking at the sense of self, sometimes one is more available than the other. We don't have to think, I have to see, like, oh, there's some kind of suffering arising. Where's the sense of self in that? To find the not-self there. We can just be curious about the pattern of suffering as it's arising. Sometimes the sense of self is more obvious, is more available to be seen. But we don't have to find it if it's not there, if it's not obvious, if it doesn't feel, it's, it's there. It just may not be what is easily available to touch into experientially. We may have some concept about it, but the experiential touching into, oh, that's that sense of self, that whew, turkey feeling Anushka described the other day. So this chain of dependent origination, there's 12 links in this chain. So it's a pretty detailed description of how suffering comes to be. This evening, I wanted to explore a portion of this teaching. So not trying to go through the whole thing. The but I'll, I'll just right now state the links. I'll start with the kind of the statement of this teaching. With ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. With mental formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, mental and physical processes come to be. With mental and physical processes condition, the six sense bases come to be. In dependence on the six sense bases, there is contact. In dependence on contact, there is feeling. In dependence on feeling, there's craving. In dependence on craving, clinging. In dependence on clinging, becoming. In dependence on becoming, birth. Independence on birth, old age, and death, and therein, the Buddha says, is the entire mass of suffering. This is also understood as a kind of a cyclic process that with suffering, when suffering is met with habits of mind, with our familiar ways of meeting experience, suffering tends to lead to more ignorance, and we just go round and round in this cycle, this chain or cycle is said to describe the process of samsara, how we stay caught in suffering. And there's the understanding, too, that if that suffering is met with wisdom, with mindfulness and wisdom, it can lead to faith. 
It can lead to delight and joy. It can lead to concentration and seeing things as they are. That direction towards freedom from suffering. And so there's some points in this process where there can be a shift. Actually, anywhere in this process we can bring mindfulness and wisdom curiosity to what's happening in this moment. So I'd like to start the exploration of this teaching today, not at the beginning, where it starts with ignorance, because those first few links are some of the more challenging to really see in direct experience. So instead, I'd like to start us where it's easier, Start the teaching where we really can contact our experience. So we have a body that's conscious. And this body, with its consciousness, has six sense bases. Sight, or eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, and the mind. And so we have these six sense spaces, and because we have this consciousness, the sense spaces are contacted by sense impressions. So the contact with the sense doors results in sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and Contact with the mind door is the recognition of thought, emotion, mind states, whole host of things going on in the mind. So this is a lot of what we've been looking at. Bonte did the exploration on the six sense spaces, looking at what is the contact, what happens with the contact. So this is just the simple, like, impression We have these senses and there's contact with our senses. So right now you may be noticing hearing. You may be noticing seeing. Body sensation, heat perhaps, or contact points. This is contact. This is the sense, the sensitivity, the sensitivity of the sense base being contacted by its sense object. Light waves for the eye, sound waves for the ear. So there's the, the sense object that comes in and actually makes physical contact with our physical sense bases. Each of these sense impressions, so this is the, the first two links I'm exploring, six sense bases with independence on the six sense bases, contact. The sixth sense spacious condition contact with the consciousness that's available to receive experience. Contact conditions feeling, the next link. Greg talked a lot about feeling last night. And as he mentioned, every single sense impression that we have, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every touch, every contact with the mind has a flavor of a feeling tone, pleasant, 
unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So we, we see the deer outside. Contact of that with the senses. There's perhaps a sense of pleasantness there. Doesn't have to be. <laughs> Could be unpleasant. Each of these sense impressions has a, uh, a, a feeling tone, and that feeling tone is itself conditioned based on, on our prior experience. So that, as Greg said last night, the feeling tone itself is not inherently in the object itself. It partly depends on um, the conditions in which the, the, the object is being, is touching our sense bases. So example of this might be, maybe you find the taste of milk pleasant after eating a cookie, especially a chocolate cookie. For me, that's, that's true. But if I taste milk after eating a pickle, it is not pleasant. So the pleasant or unpleasant is not in the milk. It's in the conditions. This is a simple example of you know, how different conditions may shape the feeling tone. So Greg talked a lot about that last night. I'm not going to repeat too much of that. So based on the feeling tone, which is already conditioned based on our prior experience, based on that feeling tone, we tend to respond with a habitual tendency of wanting more pleasant, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant. This is the next link. Feeling, conditions, craving. This... Um, it's, I think it's important to to recognize that this feeling conditions craving link, you know, this is um, this is really leading from feeling to craving. It's 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 conditions, right? It's not causal. Feelings don't have to lead to craving, as Greg pointed to last night. They don't have to. Seeing things with mindfulness and wisdom, we we may be able to just notice the feeling tone and it not lead onward to the craving. When we don't see it with mindfulness and wisdom, basically we could say the, um, the uh, mental function or the, uh, the, the, the mental formation of ignorance is acting in our minds. That very first link in the whole chain of dependent origination, it's like the, the ignorance link kind of tumbles us forward into this chain. And so when ignorance is arising with feeling, it's really strongly going to lead to craving. When we are unaware of the impermanent, unreliable nature of experience, we think there's something to hold on to. And so feeling will lead to craving in that case with, the, with, with ignorance being present. So that the, one of the ways this teaching is framed the, or translated, the, 
Sometimes we call it dependent origination. Sometimes it's called dependent co-arising. And when ignorance is co-arising with feeling, craving comes right along for the ride. And so really a lot of our work here is exploring bringing mindfulness and wisdom to whatever is here, whatever is happening. If we bring mindfulness and wisdom to the experience of feeling, it doesn't have to follow into this link of craving. And yet, often, mindfulness and wisdom aren't necessarily strong. The movement, the habit, the pattern of this cycle is so fast. It's like in a less than a split second, this whole thing can unfold. This whole 12 steps can happen in less than a split second. So there is a tendency for craving to arise around feeling tone. Craving to want something pleasant, to want to get rid of something unpleasant. Craving is embedded in both greed and aversion. Aversion is the craving to get rid of. Greed is the craving to hold on to. And then there's delusion embedded in all of it. Because the, the, um, the mind wanting the pleasant, it, you know, the, the, the greed is kind of like the movement towards the pleasant. And the, um, that movement towards pleasant is predicated on or based on or is kind of founded in the belief the delusion that having that pleasant thing will make me happy, will do it for me. Or likewise on the flip side with aversion, getting rid of that unpleasant thing, the belief, getting rid of that unpleasant thing will make me happy. Those beliefs are delusion at work. Sometimes we just see the leaning towards Sometimes we can actually recognize the idea in the mind. Yeah, I need that. That's what will make me happy. So the, uh, based on the feeling tone, we tend to lean towards pleasant, lean away from unpleasant. When mindfulness is not around, it's kind of like we're this automatic, like, get, get, get pleasant, get rid of unpleasant. Maybe just space out around neutral. Given this tendency to lean towards, you know, this kind of idea of, ooh, I need that. So the craving is kind of the whole kind of picking up um, an intention or a momentum to go towards something. The next link is clinging. With, con- with craving as a condition, clinging tends to arise. So clinging is like, I think of it almost as an intensification. There's a kind of a grading, a gradient around craving to clinging. Like the craving is the leaning towards, the, the reaching out for something. And the clinging is when we actually pick it up. So this might be craving and clinging around some particular sense pleasure, the food, 
a sight, kind of that leaning towards. And, you know, there might be, like, it might shift, for instance, you might notice a kind of pleasantness of seeing, of seeing um, particular flowers or a particular plant. Oh, I've not seen that plant before. So maybe there's a kind of sense of curiosity of pleasant there. And so there, and, and yet there may be this like, oh, let me look a little closer. So there's a, there's a craving or a wanting to see it or get a little closer to it. And then maybe it's like, oh, I need to take a picture of this. You know, then it's like, we, we kind of land on it. We, we need, or, we, or maybe we want to get out some pruning shears and take some of it back to our room, really actually physically possess it. So this happens a lot, this kind of craving, clinging, like picking it up, holding on to it. Um, Happens a lot around physical experience, but it also happens around mental experience. So for example, we might have some kind of, you know, listening to the teachings or you know, maybe seeing somebody, maybe seeing somebody doing walking meditation really mindfully. There's a kind of a little bit of a sense of, ooh, maybe I could do that too. Or, you know, a little bit of a sense of, like, an idea of what it might be like to have that kind of experience or something like that. So there's this idea that's born in the mind, a kind of a fantasy of being the best yogi here. that, um, you know, that fantasy might have a pleasant feeling tone to it. The idea, so, oh, if I was that, that would feel pretty good. So the feeling tone comes in. And then there's the desire, the wanting to have that fantasy become what happens to us. And so that's the wanting. So then there's the kind of, we pick up, potentially we pick up that idea. It's like, oh, I need that. That is what is going to make me happy. So we've kind of latched on to that belief that if I can become that good yogi that's this fantasy in my mind, then I will be happy. So that's where we've clung to that idea. The next step is from clinging is becoming. With clinging as condition, becoming tends to happen. So Tanisaro Bhikkhu has a beautiful phrase around becoming that I I like this description of what becoming is. Becoming, uh, he says, are the intentions and actions that arise in the service of clinging. So in this case, this idea of, like, you know, the idea of I need to become a good yogi. That's the clinging. This is, this is what's going to make me happy. We clung to that as being necessary. And so in that becoming necessary, there's a kind of this arising of okay, what do I have to do? How do I have to practice? You know, kind of the intentions, like what am am I going to do to make this happen? 
this this is becoming this kind of movement towards our um, our goals that have come up in in terms of the clinging. The sense of it's mine. I'm going to uh, make this happen. So becoming the intentions and views that serve our clinging. We tend to like becoming. Becoming feels pretty good because there's the idea we've bought into when becoming happens. We're kind of buying into the idea of I'm in control. I figured it out. I know what I'm going to do and I know how I'm going to do it and it's going to get me there and it's all going to be great when I get there. That's the feeling of becoming. We've picked up this kind of belief in the controllability of experience. And sometimes we can, you know, control experience, but ultimately what tends to happen is that at some point we notice we can't control experience. So we tend to like becoming. (laughs) It feels good. And then following on from becoming, we, you know, we kind of take, the, the next link is birth. And this, at times it's talked about as being, you know, an actual birth kind of into a subsequent life. But it's also... Um, pointed to as kind of the birth into an identity. Certain teachers have uh, really emphasized this. Um, um, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa really pointed to this. The, The birth could be also looked at as a birth into an identity. Like, oh, I am a good yogi. So it's no longer the wish. It's like some sense of having gratified that. So again, there's a kind of a gradation between becoming and birth in a way. The movement towards an identity, and at some point it may feel like we've landed there. Or maybe it feels like we don't land there, and we experience suffering immediately. It's like, I've failed. I I haven't figured out how to do this. I can't do this. I've experienced this kind of... um, around this idea of being a good yogi and the idea of, you know, kind of the the sense of the, the fantasy of what it means to be a good yogi. The whole project of, like, I could be continuously mindful. That's what, in the moment there, you know, I can do that. That's what that good yogi identification thinks. On one retreat, I, I almost flipped back and forth between these, like, you know, on a regular basis. It's like, oh, I took a step. Oh, I can feel, wow, really feel that step. Oh, I'm a good yogi. <laughs> Birth right into that. Oh, yeah, I'm a good yogi. And then the mind wandered. Oh, I'm a bad yogi. <laughs> Split second, you know, one to the other, and believing both of them. This is becoming in birth, seeing, seeing that process. It's really useful to begin to see this happen. 
I found for myself in, in terms of exploring this particular kind of dynamic, it feels like sometimes strong identities have a, like the good yogi identity was pretty strong. I was pretty identified with that. Like, yeah, I better be a good yogi. It's like, if I'm not a good yogi, it's a problem. But then, you know, proof. I had no, I couldn't be a good yogi. I couldn't, with this idea of my idea of good yogi, right? I couldn't be that all the time. The, I didn't have control over the mind wandering. And that was evidence that I was a bad yogi. Instead of actually exploring the kind of process of picking something up, you know, picking up the identity. I began to see, as I began to look at this, it's like, okay, I'm just going to notice these identities happening. Good yogi, bad yogi, good yogi, bad yogi. Watching that, back and forth, back and forth. It's like, oh, the bad yogi actually depends on the good yogi. Like the bad yogi doesn't even exist if the good yogi is not an issue. So I began to under, I thought at first what I needed to do was get rid of the bad yogi, right? And just be the good yogi. That if I could just not have the bad yogi, then there wouldn't be a problem. But I began to see that the bad yogi idea, the identification as bad yogi, depended on, was intimately connected with, these two identities were locked together. So the exploration of the these... Um, processes at work can begin to help us to weaken the the identification. So the next step from birth is aging and death. And as I just pointed to in that example, you know, you take birth in some kind of identity, the inevitable, impermanent, unreliable nature of experience will shatter that identity, will shatter that sense of I have that thing. If it's having a, you know, having a possession of a physical thing, the impermanence of physical things, they break, they get lost, we can suffer with that. I think much of the time we're suffering around the, uh, the, identities that we hold on to and feeling like I need to control those identities but the uncontrollable nature of the arising of experience the arising and passing of experience also means that we don't have control we can't always be the identity we want to be and so we will suffer when it's proved to us in my case you can't always be the good yogi There was a lot of suffering around that. So this cycle of dependent origination, this is as as far as I'm going to go today, so kind of middle of the chain from six sense bases Six sense bases, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, identification, aging and death, or the entire mass of suffering, the, the kind of the aging and death of that 
identi identity, the impermanent nature of it, it, it will fall apart. And therein is the suffering that results. I'll save the rest of it, the early links, ignorance, mental formation, and consciousness for my next talk. But there's plenty in this part to reflect on, in this, this part that we've explored a little bit tonight. And one piece that I want to just point to is how strong this pattern is, partly why it's so powerful for us, why we tend to get caught in it over and over again. Partly has to do with the the feeling tone of each of these links. Because each of these links is some arising experience. Craving, clinging, becoming, birth. These are all arising experience, identification, the kind of the taking up of a sense of self. It's all mental formations at work. And so um, if we think about what the feeling tones of those are, because they are mental formations, they have a feeling tone. Craving that desire, we have a pleasant feeling and we want to hold on to that pleasant feeling. We may not notice this initially, but the craving itself, in fact, we might think that it's pleasant because we're so focused on the idea of getting that thing or getting rid of that thing, we might think that that, that craving is pleasant. But if we look at the actual experience of craving, if we feel into the actual experience of craving, it's unpleasant. So craving, as a mental formation, has an unpleasant, tends to have an unpleasant feeling tone. Becoming, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, tends to have a pleasant feeling tone because there's a sense of like, you know, knowing where we're going, knowing where we're headed. And so, you know, with that craving and clinging and becoming, um, if we get what we want, we have that thing, that part feels good. You know, the clinging, when we've gotten the thing that we want, we're, we're kind of, the phrase is, we're in association with the loved. It's like, that feels pretty good. So we've gotten something that we want. So there's some pleasantness there, too. And we tend to go for pleasant. We tend to go, you know, we tend to crave that pleasant. And so we get something we want. And because of a kind of inevitable process of impermanence, the pleasure of that fades over time. And so what happens is we think, well, the last time I felt pretty good was when I got something I wanted. So what do I want to want? You could call this Google Mind. You know, you, sometimes I find myself sitting in front of that Google screen like, what do I want to know? <laughs> Not, yeah, just that kind of, that sense of wanting to have something to find to get that hit of, oh, I figured something out. This cycle tends to reinforce itself. It also has a kind of a power in that, you know, when we get the thing that we want, 
we get the thing that we want. Not only do we have the pleasantness of the association with what we want, but we also get the maybe more hidden pleasure of the feeling of the dissatisfactoriness of the wanting going away. There's a kind of a double hit of pleasure when we get what we want. Because wanting is actually really unpleasant. And we don't quite know how driven we are by that, wanting to get rid of that feeling of unpleasant. And the only way we know how to get rid of that feeling of unpleasant is to get something that we want. But this practice, what we're doing here, helps us to recognize or see that um, there's another way towards a, an ease or a peace of mind. Rather than having to get what I want to fill that gap, that kind of hole of dissatisfactoriness, craving itself is a mental formation that is impermanent. And so if we have some interest or kind of... Um, mm, curiosity about what is the experience of craving, this unpleasant feeling, and watch what happens. We'll see that craving can vanish without getting the thing that craving wants. The, the, the craving can vanish. I watched this at one point in walking meditation. I was doing this back and forth walking outside and I wanted to be away from people. I, you know, I had a lot of aversion when people are, were around so I was kind of out by myself. But I began noticing that when somebody would walk into my field of vision and I was doing a kind of secluded walking practice so not looking up but I would see like somebody pop into my field of vision in my peripheral vision. There was so much wanting to look at the person. So strong. And initially I was really just like, I am not going to look. Putting the blinders on. So there was aversion in the mind around looking. And I just kind of forced myself not to look. And just felt like, oh no, it's kind of feeling that kind of craving and pushing it down, as opposed to really feeling the craving. I got to see this a lot. This was a three-month retreat, so over the course of multiple weeks, I got to look at this pattern a lot. And one day it finally occurred to me, well, craving is happening here. Maybe I should look at the craving. So looking at the craving there, I began to see that it arose. So this is kind of the dependent origination piece. It arose when the person popped into the field of vision. So there was this, the contact, contact of seeing. Then the idea of, you know, I'll be happy if I look. So there was that kind of process going on. As long as the person was kind of in my field of vision, I felt the kind of pull. It felt like this, like this wanting felt like this, like, tractor beam of, you are going to look. But instead, instead of kind of holding my, um, my mind with the kind of the blinders on, I used mindfulness to not look and just watch the craving. 
feeling the craving, feeling it, feeling it. Like, got really strong as the person walked right in front of me. And all I would have to do was just briefly flip my eyes up to see who they were. So strong. But I just, like, watched the, the craving. And then, you know, the person kind of went around the corner and vanished. And when the person vanished, the craving vanished. That feeling of the craving vanishing felt like I was released from a vice grip. It was so much freedom. And then for a little while I started getting interested in, like I started getting, it was so much fun to watch the craving vanish. It's like I like, was like waiting for people to come around so I could watch the craving and then watch it vanish when they disappeared. And then I realized I was kind of like holding on to the craving in order to see it disappear. (laughs) And then the craving just went away. So there's so much that we can see by looking at what our minds are doing. In this case, you know, sometimes people will ask, you know, I've heard that you can cut the chain of dependent origination and feeling. You know, it doesn't have to go to craving. But in this case, it had already gone to craving. But that doesn't mean that freedom can't happen. There's another teaching um, that points to every single link of dependent origination. Every single link, it describes how freedom can be found by being aware, being mindful, noticing the arising of that. Noticing the arising of craving, noticing the ending of craving. Noticing the craving, noticing the arising of craving, the ending of craving. Freedom can happen anywhere, whatever we are knowing in the moment. I didn't have to go back and say, where was the pleasant feeling that I, I, can I go back and like cut it off at the pleasant? Craving is arising. Mindfulness of the craving, mindfulness of the clinging, mindfulness of the becoming, that sense of, oh, I'm in control, mindfulness of that. Wherever we are, the teachings point to the mindfulness and wisdom that can essentially cut through the delusion, the ignorance around things being permanent, reliable, controllable, me. It's that really that is arising with the craving that is seen through and cut through with the mindfulness and wisdom. Wherever we are, whatever is arising, that is where mindfulness can open to wisdom, and possibly to freedom in a moment, right in the midst of craving, right in the midst of self-hatred. And the last piece that I'll say is, you know, this description is pretty complicated, all these different pieces and remembering all of them, you know. Can I, can I see each individual piece and sometimes the mindfulness can get very 
strong and quite detailed and watch this happen. Watch these things unfold moment to moment. But there's also a power to just understanding that something is conditioned without needing to know how it was conditioned. For me, the self-hatred piece, I talked about self-hatred last time when I spoke, there was a real power at one point to just simply recognizing, oh, oh right, this is, this is deeply conditioned based on past history. And not knowing all the details of that conditioning, but just knowing, yeah, self-hatred is conditioned. It arises. Of course, it arises. And that, that kind of understanding was supportive for being able to meet that pattern. Before I really understood it was conditioned, I felt like I was to blame for it. You know, I, would, I should be able to control it, right? I should be able to stop it. But when I began to understand, oh, it's conditioned, it's a conditioned arising. And that reflection, right, it's conditioned, it's nature, of course it happens. That created the conditions then, that kind of understanding of the conditionality created the conditions for me to have less um, struggle to meet the pattern with mindfulness when it arose. So just knowing that something is conditioned, can be really powerful. So if that's all that you remember out of this talk, that's enough. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your practice. The world needs it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.